What you're hired for is to help us. Does that seem clear to you? To help us, not to fuck us up. To help men who are going out there to try to earn a living, you fairy. You company man. I'll tell you something else. I hope you rip the joint off. I can tell our friend here a little something might help him to catch you. You want to learn the first rule? You'd know if you ever spent a day in your life. You never open your mouth till you know what the shot is. You are a shithead, Williamson. Episode 47 of the Cult of Matt and Mark Cult Film Review Podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Mark. Make sure to visit us at our website at cultfilmreview.blogspot.com or send us an email at cultfilmreview at gmail.com. Uh, a little show news. Uh, we have, I think, five podcasts up on U-Tunes. Um, actually, U-Tunes? It's more, it's more of an advertising gimmick, gimmick on our part to sort of drive drive uh, traffic to the site but uh if you're at work and you don't have a means of listening to uh our podcast and want to suck up company bandwidth then uh you can youtube the cult of matt mark and i think we have five up so the greatest hits if you will i'll have to go check them out uh, do that sir yeah i'm sure i'm sure uh, i'm sure they'll be novel and new you know so well uh a cat video then the cult of matt and mark then the uh, cute dog puppy video exactly that sounds and, like a good saturday and Russians in tracksuits beating each other up. Oh, yeah, and uh, car accidents on snow. Oh, those are good, too. <laughs> Russians yeah, in tracksuits. I swear to God, man. I don't know. There's like a million of those fucking videos out there. Of like yeah, these. they like their tracksuits. I think a lot of people like tracksuits. They're very comfortable. They're sort of like the America wears um, uh, sweatpants, and the rest of the world wears those nylon tracksuits. Well, they do match, so they are technically like a suit. You know, I mean, they they have a matching top and bottom. Yeah, I had an Adidas tracksuit I used to wear a little bit in college. Yeah, Navy blue. It's sort of nice for going out and running around at the park. It's and beating up your uh, mafia or your mob rivals. You know that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you want to, I usually have my uh, underlings do that. <laughs> All right, into the show. Uh, so this week we're reviewing uh, the classic. Mammoth adaptation, I'll call it. Uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. uh, Oh, and by the way, I I am an asshole because uh, Mammoth didn't direct this. You you fucking leading on our fans. I'm a stupid cunt. God damn. You fuck, you fairy. (laughs) I'm a fairy. (laughs) Um, Actually, the film was, uh, yeah, it was uh, originally a play by David Mammoth, then adapted by David Mammoth for the screen. Uh, directed by James Foley. Um, I don't have James Foley's list of uh, movies, although I uh, it's nothing too it. exceptional. Actually, I'm sort of excited about it because that means I can do a, a different Mammoth film without duplicating his directing. Because uh, I think he's a great director. That's true. Um, so I'm going to throw one up on the up on the uh, schedule at some point. So he did um, at close range, which uh, that Sean Penn Christopher Walken movie that 
didn't, I don't think, turn a dime. It, it didn't Did turn a dime in the theater. No, but uh, the Madonna video, like, surpassed it in popularity, like, tenfold. So oh, he did a Madonna were, video? No, there was a song associated with that film by Madonna. I think this is when Madonna and Sean Penn were a thing. And, uh, oh, God, that was a long time ago. Yeah, ancient history. So, uh, Foley, uh, ooh, he did do a Madonna movie in 87, Who's That Girl? Yeah. Yeah, she's a really good actress. Yeah, 23% on Rotten Tomatoes worth of acting there. So, okay. Uh, Anyway, um, but Glengarry Glen Ross, I don't think you can find a cast of uh, acting heavy hitters as big as in Glengarry Glen Ross. I mean, it's just, it's an absolute insane star-shot cast. I don't know. I, I wonder what the casting story behind this movie is. There's a bit of a casting story. Uh, we can get into it slightly. Um mm-hmm. So the Alec Baldwin Blake character, which not in I the think, original play, by the way, was not in the original play. And yeah, I've seen a production of the play. Foley was having a hard time getting Al Pacino to play uh, the Roma character. So instead, they cast Alec Baldwin as sort of the backup hitter for the Ricky Roma character, and as soon as Alec was on board to play that role, then Al Pacino. Chino was freed up, and then he took the Ricky Roma role, and they moved Alec Baldwin over into the Blake character, which, like you said, was a film-only uh, character. But that was a character designed by Mamet in the screenplay adaptation. Correct, yes. And uh, he was only on film for uh, 10 minutes, I think. Yeah, he's like a ghost. He comes in, and he just disappears. And I believe that that was probably Alec Baldwin's finest acting moment in my opinion. I don't think there's really anything that surpasses that that I can recall. Uh, I like the, I like him in Hunt for Red October. Oh, please. No. Really? I watched that movie the other day. I think it's a pretty good film. That was one of the uh, Tom Clancy. Uh, yeah. that Whatever that character was. I think Tom Clancy. Three or so movies of those. Tom Clancy's a brand name now. He has, I don't know, he has ghostwriters write his books uh, if you look at those Tom Clancy novels, they, they say Tom Clancy's blah, 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 Rainbow Six, uh, whatever. And then if you look underneath, there's a person who actually wrote it. So between Good work that, if you can get it. So between that, oh yeah, totally good work if you're a writer. Between that and all the video games, I think Tom Clancy is probably uh, it's a name. The Rainbow himself. Six games? Yeah, there's a shit ton. Yeah, it's not really up my alley type of play, but... So, besides the Jack Ryan character... Alec oh, Baldwin, that's his character, yeah, Jack Ryan. This Alec, Alec Baldwin's Blake character, I believe, is probably... I don't know. It's it, To me, it's, his, it's Alec Baldwin's finest performance, I think. Yeah, everybody remembers the the brass balls. He's right up there with his sweaty balls stick <laughs> in uh, the public consciousness. What is him in, in testicles? He's got some sort of testicle thing. Did you ever see the Saturday Night Live bit where he was a scoutmaster? I... Fr- uh boy, I vaguely remember that. Vaguely he played that. a uh, pedophilia, pedophilia, pedophile scoutmaster. Is there another kind? <laughs> you know, scoutmasters unfortunately are almost uh, as notorious for that kind of thing as Catholic priests. It seems. Well, I mean, I think that uh, well, a lot of people are scoutmasters. A lot of people just get roped into it because their kids are in scouts. Right, maybe they were a scout when they were. I'm, I, don't, I don't mean to suggest that's true. 
I mean, it certainly then, it happens, like, you know. Any yeah, of that but stuff. if there was, like, a scoutmaster who didn't have a family, just, like, a single guy, I think you would almost, it would almost it'd be too suspicious. I don't think I'd let my kid join a scout troop with, uh, you know, a, a, a childless scoutmaster. Yeah, that'd be a little strange. I mean, unless you're really into scouts, like, maybe you were really young and you were, like, a you know, just in college or something, and you'd been Eagle Scout like just a couple of years before. Nah, I don't you buy know, it. before, no. but, but if you're like 45. Yeah, I don't buy it. No. So, anyway, you, uh, worthy of YouTube if it's on there, that uh, Alec Baldwin skit's pretty, pretty amazing. But, okay, so let's get into Glenn Glary, Glenn Ross. Uh, David Mamet's award-winning play about a group of desperate real estate agents comes to the big screen from director James Foley. In a role created specifically for the movie, Alec Baldwin appears as a sales motivator, informing the group of hard luck salesmen that they must compete in a sales contest where the losers will be fired. The agents work their same tired leads until one hatches a scheme to burglarize the office, steal the leads, and sell them to a rival. Featuring a cast... That includes Al Pacino as the office's sales leader, Jack Lemmon as an elderly loser, Alan Arkin and Ed Harris as frustrated salesman, Kevin Spacey as the harassed office manager, and Jonathan Price as a client. Glengarry Glen Ross is at its core a character study about a group of men whose time has passed. I don't know if that's necessarily true. Well, I mean, I wouldn't call Jack Lemmon a loser. He's, he's elderly. Well, it's interesting because when you listen to their phone shticks, you can tell each one has their own. If they were like pickup artists for women, each has their own shtick. And you can tell the ones that would work and the ones that wouldn't work that well. And the Jack Lemon, the, the Shell Levine shtick, it, it seems extremely tired. His, uh, you know, hi, this is Shell Levine. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, well trod and, and, tiresome you well every, everybody's shtick seems very similar i mean if you consider shelley's and uh uh, uh george Alan arkin's character and uh, uh dave moss ed harris's character they all sort of do the similar thing you know i'm in from out of town and i only got tonight and i'm the vice president yada 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 i'm in from arizona or florida or whatever the only person that really has a different shtick is is ricky ricky yeah his shtick is more nuanced and uh, seductive, I would say. Yeah, he does. He, he does. He's, he's more of a, a pillow talk. Pillow talk is a good word for it. He's. Uh, it's like the the definition of a soft sell. You don't know that you're being sold something until he kind of leads you through the path, and then you finally realize. I don't think I would be as duped because salesmen. I'm always on my guard when I'm when somebody's trying to sell me something and it's always kind of an awkward interchange whether you're buying a car like yesterday I had a, an estimator come out because I want to convert the house over to or, or to gas and you know you you get this you get the sales pitch and you have to be sort of wary you have to kind of keep it moving at least that's what I was trying to do you know, because he was like showing me all these awards and some award from the city about saving a kid from a burning car on the Ballard Bridge. It was really kind of strange. And uh, I was like, ah, all right, you know, I, 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 you're a good guy. All right. I get it. You know. And so I just wanted to get get him to give me like a written estimate 
and how long this is going to take. And it took forever. I mean, it was, you know, you're sitting there listening and you're like, okay, he's selling, he's selling, he's selling. And, uh, you know, it was like an hour and 15 minutes. It seemed like it went on way too long. Well, you just got to, you know, you just got to be mean in sales situations. You just got to be a dick. Well, and And that's okay. They can take it. And they're professional shit takers. Yeah. And you could uh, dish it out like nobody's business and it's just going to roll off their backs. And if it doesn't, they'd get out of the salesman business a long time ago. It's a, it's a tough racket hand to the hand to the lips, miming a a drink of scotch there or whatever Alec Baldwin (laughs) does, you know, um, salesman be this, this movie actually is used to train salesmen. Strangely, I read that a lot of, I don't know if you're, I don't know what classes you take to become a salesman, but, they, Man, they're born. Not you got to be born. There's a, there's a banner in the uh, sales office. So salesmen are born, not uh, taught or something along those lines. Well, okay, that may be true, but you have to hone your skill at a certain point. And to sell something, to be a salesman, I think has got to be the hardest white-collar job in the world. I can't imagine a job that's tougher than that. It's Well, I mean, it's not all, you know property a lot of times it's it's within sales within businesses so it's not quite uh you know it's not quite as down and dirty as this i think well i mean a lot of sales jobs are you know you're working for one company that's working for another company and they're looking at products and uh you know i don't think it's not quite as you know slimy as car salesmen or property salesmen they're sort of the the worst of the of the of a bad business well, yeah, and I've dealt with those folks too. I would call them the professional sales managers, if you will. But the folks—if I mean, that- you're working for HP and you're going over to some big company that has an IT infrastructure and you're, you know, you're throwing products out, you know, to re, you know, change out their servers or whatever. It's, you know, you're not the VP of, you're not coming in as the vice president of HP and from uh, California for the weekend. Yeah, exactly. you know, this is something that's set up long before and you're coming in, you know, the follow up on an online sales presentation. Exactly. Well, you're also dealing with a clientele that's extremely educated about your products as opposed to people who are buying land or cars or, you know, whatever. And it's not emotional. I mean, they're, it's just their job. They're, I got to buy some new servers. And exactly. I got to buy them from HP or I got to buy them from Dell, you know. It's and also it's so also they're not, not really yeah. Hmm? It's also really not their money. That's the other thing. Yeah. It's, it's if it's not your money, uh you don't dep- you don't part with it as easily obviously or as emotionally. Yeah, you don't I have don't. the emotions. You and you're not trying to go for a return on your vest investment like property. No. Uh-uh. I mean so, maybe uh, retirement planners might be similar to this. Well, anytime you deal with I guess uh, individuals who you know not corporations or anything but people who have nest eggs or have a limited amount of of capital to invest in parcels of land or whatever kind of investment uh, you're looking to you know package for the consumer you I, I you know you're not talking about like investment banking or corporate investment you're just talking about trying to get people to i don't know it's almost a it's, it's a predatory it's, thing it's a predatory thing exactly i mean you want to you want to hear uh jack lemon's character at work 
Oh, do you got to you got to drop yeah. on him? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> you know, that's the only parcel that I've got. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back to the computer. I'm going to pull another one, and we're going to speak to your relatives, no, too. No, no, come no, on. No, You're a busy no. man, Larry, and so no, am listen, I. My listen. God, I'm in the act of giving a gift away. Look, <laughs> I don't want to buy land. I don't want to invest in land. I have yeah. nothing. Hmm. Yeah, I, she took the call without my knowledge. Uh-huh. I have no business yeah, that I wish that, to transact. Okay, I don't want to tell you how to handle no. your wife. Well, my <laughs> wife filled in a form, and we have been plagued for the last year now, by... That's the situation that I'm trying to eliminate, no. Larry. I... No, do you understand? Thank you, no. Yeah. That's yeah. sort of sad. I mean, that's a failed pitch. But you tell it's just you just shoveling shit. Well, and that the Jack Lemon character, I think, is the I wouldn't there's no main character to this film, but he's definitely the character that Mamet dissects more than any other. Because you get more of his backstory, you get the fact that he has a daughter in the hospital. Yeah, they spend very little time on his sick daughter, and actually, it's not in the play, the sick daughter business. Now, I, I don't. I, don't, I guess I'm not really sure why Mamet put it in there. I mean, if he did in fact put it in the screenplay, and it wasn't something that was added during the production, I don't know why. I guess it does sort of go to say that he's desperate enough to do the robbery at the end. Uh, I mean, it didn't seem to be necessary in the play to motivate his desperation. Well, this movie has been compared to Death of a Salesman numerous times, and I think that's probably because Arthur Miller and David Mammon are regarded as two of the top playwrights of the 20th century. Yeah. And both of their most famous works have to deal with salesmen, so I guess it's only natural that you would compare the Shell Levine to the uh, Willie Loman character in Death of a Salesman. Yeah, and I'm not familiar. Have you seen Death of a Salesman? I've seen it. I've seen the, the play. The film adaptation? Or the I play? have. I've seen the Dustin Hoffman adaptation, and I've seen uh, the play a few times. Uh, the, you know, trying to dredge up the Death of a Salesman, I haven't seen it in a while. But you get sort of the almost exhausted character profile both Shel Levine and Willie Loman are they're both older in their 60s yeah and uh the whole thing about sales and being a salesman is is it's sort of a young man's game and a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's charisma driven and so when you're older I think your charisma is is bought much more at a premium or it's much more challenging to be a charismatic figure when you're in your late 50s, early 60s. And in Death of a Salesman, there's a huge nostalgia element that Willie Loman has and plays through with his two sons. And uh, he has this focus on being liked as being the most important thing in the world. Because as a salesman, that is kind of the most important thing in the world is to be liked. Uh, so By who? By everybody. Uh, you know, it's it's part of the. I thought the important thing was the sign on the dotted line, the line well, which is dotted. Sign on the line which is dotted. Yeah, that's a very uh, well, uh, long course, way to put it. That's the consummation of the courting, I guess. As a I mean, Alan Arkins and Ed Harris's characters talk about this idea of being too aggressive and burning bridges with customers. Yeah, that's sort of an. Well, maybe we can talk about those guys just after we 
I guess finish up with the Shell Levine portrait. I, I just don't. I just don't know if being. I mean, if that's the point of Death of a Salesman, I don't know if that's really the point of this film. Is that being like is the most no, important part of salesmanship? No, uh, it's not. But they're they're just two compared works that, and, and specifically towards the Shell Levine kind of characters. So, uh, but you wonder, did Mamet write him as a detestable character or a pathetic character? And I guess that's or both. You know, who? Uh, Which Shell character? Le- Shell Levine. I don't think. Uh, neither detestable or what were the two options? Uh, detestable or pathetic. I, I don't see him as either. I just think, see him as a salesman with a lot of experience. that's a little down on his luck and is desperate. I don't see him as I don't detest him. And why would you find him detestable? Um, I mean, he's just plying his trade. Uh, well, if you don't, why find would you that- find him pathetic? I mean, um, I mean, this he's not doing anything, and you other than the the robbery, which is just desperation. I guess you could call that pathetic. I mean, it seems a little like a bit of a harsh term for a man that's had a string of bad luck and has hospital bills to pay for the health of his daughter. Uh, oh, so you're not reading anything more deeper into the Shell Levine character than... Oh, I just see him as a desperate... He's sort of desperate. I mean, he's getting older and he's getting desperate. But is he an unlikable character? I, I, I like Shelley quite a bit. Even if you were that guy in that clip that we just heard trying to get him out the door. Uh, oh, I mean, he wasn't being overly aggressive. He was just doing this salesman shtick. You can't really fault. You know, you can't fault a lion for uh, killing a zebra. I mean, it's just what he does. You can't fault a salesman for giving you the hard sell. That's simply in his nature. All right. So you're much and, more. And, and the guy handled it just fine. He said, hey, man, I'm not buying anything from you. You know, it it's a little of, uncomfortable, but hey, that's life. There's all sorts of uncomfortable situations you find yourself in. Yeah, and like I when know. I was trying to drop AOL on the phone. Have you, did you ever have to go through that? Uh, no. You know, dealing with salespeople, you know, that's just part of life. You know, you just uh, power through it best you can and forget about it when you're done. I remember when I was, I was trying to get rid of AOL and I called them up and I was like, okay, I'm, I got high speed. Can you please get rid of my account. It took me like a half hour to, to tell those guys, no, drop my account. I want something. I want confirmation that it's been dropped. And then it just, it went on like that. I kept repeating myself like a robot yeah. because uh, AOL was the desperate salesman of the time because their whole point yeah, they of were business falling was, apart. yeah, there's no point to them. You know, it's like, well, we have AOL a uh, high speed, you know, it's like some sort of Yahoo portal that mm-hmm. uh, would allow you to carry your, AOL account. A lot of people speed. did that. They kept paying their ten dollars a month just for the email. Oh, Jesus Christ! Yeah, and like just... the the the, ta- the chat rooms or whatever AOL had set up. I yeah. mean, you can't really fault them. It's not really their decision to to be so obstinate. Well, the thing, and I guess that's sort of the the thing about this movie is that it's it's. Uh, primal it's sort of the the rule of of nature it's mm-hmm. the, the 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 people that exist in this film are they may be amoral but they're just working the machine they're it's capitalism it's uh, it is what it is it's there's no people as human beings we always tend to tie in the emotion and the morality of everything that we engage in and with salesmen being a salesman and trying to 
you know, push a product and get paid and get commission is uh, it's it's not a playing field for that kind of weakness, I guess, if you want to call it weakness. I don't know. Well, it certainly is weakness. I mean, if you, I mean, it is nice. It's a little little like, you know, I don't know. It's a little bit of the substructure of capitalism laid bare for us to look at. And well, I mean, I guess you could find it amoral. I mean, their morals really don't have a whole lot to play with capitalism. Capitalism is outside of any of those societal constructs. So there's only only one thing is making money. And Blake's exactly. pretty obvious about that. And everybody else is. I mean, Shelley's about it. I mean, he, he doesn't care until he makes a sale. And, uh, and, uh, Ricky's the same about that. It's all about making the sale. Whatever shit you have to sling to get there is just what you have to do. It's well, life. one of the most significant things is you have to lie your ass off to make a sale. You have to yeah. completely lie your ass off. Yeah, no, you just, you have to do whatever you have to do. I mean, whatever's necessary, do it. And a lot of people, I think, have a huge problem with lying to make a buck. Well, uh, certainly. There's only, I mean, I couldn't do that job. I'm, I'm not that good of a liar. But you could certainly, but I can certainly comprehend somebody doing that job, and I can comprehend their motivations. And when I'm, uh, you know, when I'm confronted with a salesperson using tactics like this, I mean, you have to appreciate what they're doing. I mean, right. otherwise, you're just going to be a rube. You're just going to get taken to the cleaners if you don't understand what they're doing. And there's no reason to feel mad about it. It's just, uh, uh, it's, just it's just like some, a machine. They're just a mach- they're just a part in a machine doing its job. They're the machine Levine. Yeah, the machine Levine. Perfect. <laughs> I mean, Levine's just. I mean, Shelley's just doing what he does, and Ricky's just doing what he does. And the people that complain about it, like Alan Arkin's character or Ed Harris's character, they really don't. It's true. They don't really belong. Blake's right. Let's uh, talk. Ricky's about, right. Let's talk. They don't about belong this. in there. If they can't do it, they shouldn't be doing it. Let's talk about those two characters. Uh, I kind of like their their little bits. I, I like the Ed Harris Alan Arkin interplay. Well, uh, Ed Harris really actually does sort of belong because he is completely amoral. I mean, I love how he uh, how he basically there's basically two real bums in this play. It's uh, James Link. Played a really nice, really tough Jonathan performance Price. by Jonathan Price, where you really have to play sort of a dollar. You can tell he's sort of a second fiddle in whatever his relationship. You know, like the money is his wife's. Uh, he's a Br- he's a pants. he's a Brit too, Jonathan Price, I believe. He's a Brit, and uh, and and George uh, Aronow, uh Alan Arkin's character, is also sort of a sort of a fool as well. I mean, they're grist uh, yeah. for the mill. They're, they're you know, meat to be chewed up and spat out. And they don't really belong in the business. Dave does. I mean, I love how Dave, you know, gets uh, Ed, uh, gets Alan Arkin's character to go down the rabbit hole with him about the about the uh, robbery. And then at the end, he basically goes, look, you're, good, you're in. And I'm not even giving you half the cut. So you're accessory. You don't, I'm going to fucking be- rat you out, and I'm going to blackmail you. You're accessory before the fact. Yeah, it's like just, that. I mean, and, and he walks all over him because he's somebody who can be walked over. Right. I mean, it's, he's just, a, you know, he's just, you know, he's the meat out there to be consumed. And I mean, I guess you can feel sorry for them, you know, as much as you feel sorry for a rabbit being hunted by a wolf. Rabbit being hunted by a wolf. But, um, but that's just nature. It's just nature. No, I'm sorry. I'm, just, I'm playing that up a little bit. No, it's, you know, I like that when he was repeating like the the last bits of everything that uh, Ed Harris says. 
that always. Oh yeah, I mean they're, they're just not that intelligent. Uh, no, I don't know what to say. I mean, they're. <laughs> it's a lot of the jungle out there and the salesmen. There's no, there's no humanity. No, and and it's okay. Uh, you go home to your wife and 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 cry on her shoulder, as right. as Blake says. Oh man, and that's true. I mean, what do you? Who? How about let's think about it. you. I mean, you go to work. We, we both work. You know, in, in in like an environment where you're not wearing your heart on your sleeve, right? Oh yeah, totally. And how about people who are always whining and complaining about when things don't go their way at work? How do you feel about them? Oh, you hate them. You just despise them. You're like, just we well, just shut the fuck up, you pathetic. You shut moron. the fuck up and put in your eight and go home, right? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. We're all in this um, together. Why are you making my life miserable? You know. Well, then, I mean, I, I guess I, I guess I almost have the people I have contempt for. The people I dislike are James Link and George Arenal. Because of the people that don't understand the game. I mean, not even on the at the basic, the most basic level. True. I, so maybe yeah, you're arguing that maybe those two characters are the least likable of the film because they certainly are because they're not they're not evolved enough to play in the in, in on the field that they're playing on, which is that sales, the hard sales kind of you know whether you're a, a buyer or a seller. Uh, they're not cut out for it, and they're more or less fools. If you want to use well, that look word look what it. James Link's doing. I mean, he's wasting everybody's time. He's wasting his time, which maybe is not very valuable because he's sort of a dip. And he's wasting uh, Ricky's time because the sale's not going to stick. And he's wasting his wife's time. He's wasting everybody's time. Well, in in society, we always hate vacillators and hesitators we like men of action regardless of whether those actions are the right thing to do but at least people are taking a path and sticking to it and they're not waffling nobody likes a waffler regardless and that's why you're right i think jonathan price character is is uh, he's he's not very authentic i guess uh compared to the other well, he's authentically a dipshit. I mean, I think well, it's a great performance, personally. I oh, think it's it probably is, maybe yeah. one of the stronger performances. I think it's a little easier to play the wolf than the sheep. Maybe you're right. Although the well, sheep, either the wolves get the uh, credit in this film. I mean, we've both been the wolf and we've both been the sheep in situations. Yeah, except... And uh, you don't want to be the sheep. <laughs> no, no, because you'll get picked apart by the Ricky Romas of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's a certain contract. I mean, I, I always feel when I deal with salesmen or, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses when they come around, I try to be honest with them. You know, look, you, we want to waste both of our time here with this conversation. Uh, right? Because, you know, you're wasting yeah. my time and you're wasting your own goddamn time. And this is your job. The last thing you want to do is be spending time not making money or not converting souls. So let's just nip this in the bud right now and save ourselves both a bunch of trouble. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. What, what, what are we doing? Why are we, you know, yeah, nobody's, nobody's getting anything out of this current r- arrangement. Why don't we just drop it? And I've had salesmen kind of, I've been the Jonathan price a few times and, um, yeah, no, you, when a salesman turns off, you know, they turn off, they're like a, they're like a light switch, you know, once they realize, once you're honest and you're like, you know what, I'm really not going to buy anything, uh, then they're done. 
Yeah, you know. And uh, I actually had this happen when I was I was working a conference down in San Jose. It was an uh, SPIE conference, and they uh, they're the journal that. Uh, covers optical engineering and optics technology, and this was back in the 90s sometime. And I walked the floor, what do you call it, where they have all their stands set up, all the companies and the... Um, the expo. Expo, Whatever. yeah. And so I was walking around, and I was just working there. I was like a student just working the conference so I could have access and see a few uh, talks and that kind of thing. And uh, I would go up to these booths, and I would start asking more or less the salesman because that's who they were uh, about what it is they're doing you know because i was more or less curious and stuff and then they they go oh, do you have a card where are you from and uh, i was like oh i'm a i'm a student at you know wherever and off like a light switch they would like look over my shoulder for the next person and yeah uh, i was gone you know you could tell that why why would i even what would be the point of this exchange yeah. for me i was just curious so I had a lot more invested in talking to the guy than he obviously had invested in me, but it was pretty interesting. Well, he just wasted his time talking to you. Exactly. So he was just moving on to the next person. You know, and, it's, and it's totally understandable. It's nothing to take personally. Oh, no. And, yeah, it kind of got me but thinking But it, it's about tough. That you know, bit. you do take it personally. You, you know, you just sort of have to try not to. Yeah, and that's probably why in this film – I. I to be sexist, you don't see any women in this film. You do yeah, see, you do see one woman who like takes the code at the China Bowl. Oh yeah, there is a woman there, but she doesn't have a line, and she's just a set over to chinks, over to ch- over to the chinks. By the way, that looked like a fucking awesome bar. I, I don't. I yeah, think- it did seem like a nice bar, considering the lights were burnt out in front of the bowl. I mean, in front of the restaurant, it's pretty nice oh. inside. And there's something about those old Chinese American restaurants that. I think they had to to mix up really strong cocktails to get people in. I I don't know what the deal is with like lounges and uh, Chinese American restaurants, but it's sort of a thing. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know. It's sort of the way of some Mexican places. I mean, I tell you, strong drinks are important. And uh, you know, we should go head over to the rickshaw sometime. I heard that's the ri- reopened. The rickshaw did reopen. I thought that yeah. player were going to bulldoze that place. but uh, Let's go there. Next time I come by, let's go eat at the rickshaw. Oh, I don't want to eat at the rickshaw. We're going I to would, the rickshaw. Oh. I, I see the dudes that- Well, let's just have, go have a drink at the rickshaw. Let's just go over there and have a drink. Have a Singapore sling or Yeah, whatever. let's just go have a drink. Oh, my- Well- We'll have, I, we'll have a drink at the rickshaw enough said. Wow. You're- Jeez. You're, you're hard sell, man. You're Ricky Roman and me on this one. <laughs> what is it? It's just an opportunity. Do you got any land to sell me while we're there? Is that the deal? (laughs) I got some great investment ideas. So the racket of Glengarry Glen Ross, I was trying to figure out what they're selling. They're selling land. Yeah, I love how this office looks like any, like, uh, property sales office you walk by in any town. Sort of this sort of sad, you know, uh, just straight up office place with old office furniture. Yeah. You like, see all these places with all the properties on the windows, especially when you're vacationing in like a uh, vacation towns like Leavenworth or Chelan. Oh, There's tons yeah. of these businesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you if, got, you got, man, are they full of guys like this? These full of Shelley's and Ricky's? I bet they are. Well, I was trying to, I don't know. Okay, so they're, they're doing land. It's like land speculation is the, the, the gig that they're in. They're not selling houses or. Yeah. Or anything like that, but they're selling lots, plots, plots of land or tracts of land. Well, I think and, they're smaller plots. I think the idea is that the idea that they'd be housing developments, so they're probably like uh, 
you know, half acres or third acres or something. So they're selling them primarily in what I can tell is uh, Arizona, you know, the Rio Rancho properties. Florida. And, and Florida, The what is it, the Glengarry Highlands? Is that the... Yeah, uh, Glengarry Highlands. Yeah. Which, by the way, I don't think there's any fucking highlands in Florida. That place is flat as a pancake. I always thought that well, was they say funny. the rolling hills are beautiful. You got to see these. From these oh. guys, these salesmen have never been there. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, this is this is the most predatory of all land properties. You know, property. Well, it's uh, it's it's offices. it's literally selling swampland in Florida. That's what they're doing. And like, so you're selling, I guess, plots of land in retirement locations in Arizona and Florida. And I guess on the hopes that a developer will come in someday and buy that land off of you and build homes, and then you can double or triple what you bought it for. Well, on top these of are probably properties that have been subdivided by municipalities. Yeah. So, so the idea is that though, they're going to put a road out there and people are going to start building houses, and it could get hot, and people are going to want to put houses there, and maybe your plot will be worth something. I mean, it's possible. So you're not selling, they're not selling houses, which no. have a practical value attached to them. Well, I mean, if you want to make use of it, yeah. So this is, I don't know, this is... This This is speculative stuff. Yeah, exactly. So they're, you know, they're, uh, I think this was 92. I think the play was in 84, somewhere around there. But it's interesting to view Glengarry Glen Ross through the lens of the uh, crash of 2008 with the property crash and... uh, you know that yeah there was, oh yeah there a lot were, of speculators lost their lost their uh, pants on that one that you could imagine these guys thriving at such a level they would be oh, oh yeah especially Ricky these, Roma was going nuts he was Rick, he was he made I made nine hundred thirty thousand dollars last year how about you oh that was Blake who said that yeah I know but that'd be Ricky Roma oh but if you those guys hung on like to that to the two thousands. They would all have been million. I mean, gazillionaires. You know, if they were that hard nosed, because any oh, Ricky hack, is any hack was getting into the property market in the two thousands. Oh yeah, you didn't have to fucking even try to sell anything. It just sold itself. You know, yeah. and uh, now we're reaping, of course, the uh, the windfall of all that. So yeah, it's an it was it's it's an interesting. I don't know why Mamet chose. Uh, the land salesman or real estate salesman as opposed to like car dealers, but maybe it's because it's just slimier. I don't know. Maybe I it's think, just, I mean, because I mean, there's at least there's at least there's a product that both people are seeing. I mean, the salesman and the customers here are buying stuff sight unseen. Both of them haven't seen it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and to convince somebody to, you know, throw their retirement savings at it is, uh, yeah, it's all in government bonds. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, you get that, and then uh, the leads. And so the other thing is leads is mentioned something like 85, 87 times. They say leads in this film. Well, I it's think, all about the leads. Well, and it's interesting. Okay, so just a word rundown. Uh, fuck is and derivatives is uttered 138 times in the film. Shit and its derivatives is uttered 50 times. And I like uh, cunt. I think is uttered three times. Oh, that's one of my. That's one of my favorite swear words. I love that one. That's a British thing. We don't get a lot of people calling people. Cunts well, cunt's not as big of a thing as it is here in the states. Cunt's very important. As far cunt's kind of like a prick. I don't know. It's uh, if somebody called you a cunt versus a prick, 
I'd probably be more upset about cunt. If they called me a cunt with a British accent, I would feel much less. Uh, yeah, no, I think they use it. You know, it's sort of a throwaway in Britain. You fucking cunt. That was terrible, but yeah, you know what I mean. Uh, but Leeds, Leeds occurs eighty-three times in the script. They're saying Leeds. Well, shit, and, the whole fucking movie is about the Leeds. It's all about the Leeds. That's what the robbery is about. So the Leeds, I guess, I, I was trying to figure out because you don't get the backstory about what a lead is. But well, uh, whenever it, you, I mean, if you go to the mall and there's somebody there with a with a a bin and a, uh, you know, they're giving away a boat or something. Yeah. And you uh, oh, you yeah. sign up for your interest in something. That's exactly what this leads is. That's what it's it. That's what it is. That's so, all these numbers are. So would it be people like? Let's That's say, why you never sign up for that shit. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> then you have then you have Shelly Levine at your door at like nine at night trying to sell you yeah, bullshit. I mean, exactly. I mean, that's what the guy's talking about. They signed up for something. That's why you're really careful about signing up for that bullshit, unless you don't mind. You know, telling salesmen to hit the bricks, unless it's not a really big deal to you, and you don't think you're going to be. You know, so uh, like I guess leads would be like if you're on vacation and hey, you want a free dinner? Oh. Jesus fucking Christ! I mean, when I went to Mazatlan four years ago, it was nothing. But come you, for breakfast at our timeshare bullshit. It's like fuck. Did you do it's that? So fuck no. <laughs> you know, luckily Gene was there because I was a little. I didn't understand until like after the first day how how fucking incessant this would be. You would, yeah. I mean, yeah. every time you left the hotel, it's like, bam, bam, you just get hit by guys. And uh, our van to take us to a hotel from the airport, the lady, some lady rode along and gave the speech about uh, coming over for breakfast to see our wonderful new property. Oh, God. And I was like, really? Hmm. I mean, is that something we should do? And Gene's like, fuck, don't do that. Yeah, right. No she, way. I was yeah. like, oh, thanks. Because uh, next day you realize it's just. It's fucking nonstop. And this thing, you know, you're on the hook for a fucking expensive timeshare you never use. It's bullshit. Well, I had an ex-girlfriend who went to Hawaii and, and she was broke. And, like, they went on some catamaran cruise that had, you know, like, like they fed you dinner or something like that. And she's like, oh, we're going on. I was like, oh. It's like, yeah, we just have to go to, like, a three-hour seminar. Oh, on. fuck. <laughs> I mean, if it's that important to you, three hours of your life, I mean, how much is push you on vacation? Right. So yeah. how much time do you want to spend getting a hard sell? How much is whatever the fucking thing you're getting for free worth? A breakfast? Yeah, I know. Yeah. No. I mean, it's that, not even worth your hourly wage at whatever shit job you have back in the States. Well, and the irony is, I guess the people that go to those things who don't have enough cash to throw around on a vacation uh, don't have enough cash to throw around on a timeshare either. So that always seems a little bizarre. Like, is that your demographic? Is that the demographic you want? I mean, who you know, you can get a little blood out of that uh, rock. I guess. Yeah. So I guess if you're at one of those, like, condo sales and you fill out a little card, maybe Either that- you're extremely cheap and you don't mind putting it up with it for a free breakfast or a catamaran ride, or you're... Or, I mean, you're taking unawares. I mean, we don't get a lot of hard sells here in the States unless you go out looking for it. So you don't get a lot of street propositions. Yeah. Right? No. So, I mean, you get caught unawares. And I can understand, but you should not be caught unawares after that first time. And you shouldn't fall for the hard sell either. So I guess the leads are then just like you said, like win this free boat, fill out this card. Uh, I mean, that's a shtick they use a lot. Oh, you know, I got to come over and talk to you about this prize. And then they come over and they never talk about the prize. Yeah. Well, they, that's mentioned in this a few times. Oh, you I mean, That's like, what Shelly Levine does there when he goes over to that guy's house. It's something about a prize. 
Yeah. But then but they the, never talk about it when he gets there. It's all about the property you want to invest in. Exactly. Which is uh, bullshit. But I don't I mean, know. You don't want to be. There's no reason to be mad about it. You know, it's, it's just the machine. Well, and the uh, you know, if you did a statistical analysis of how many leads you have for however many sales you make, uh, I guess if you understand the statistics of your game, then you probably don't mind striking out 99 times out of 100. Maybe that isn't a big deal. You know, maybe it's like the guys who hit on everything that moves. And you're like, wow, why would you hit on everything that moves, dude? I mean, you just, it's like pathetic. But then, you know, the, the, that one time out of 100, uh, they get a, they get somebody who will, uh, you know. Well, it's probably better than cold calling. You know, it's funny. I talked to a guy who uh, used to do a little, uh, I'm not sure what it was for, like a car dealership or something. And uh, he uh, went to malls and had a boat that he took around all over western Washington. And <laughs> he was like, would park he was like it guy at the mall and get people guy. to, you know, fill out the form and put it in the big pot. And it's like, so how long... How long did that boat, how long until that boat was given away? He says, oh, man, I hauled that fucker around for like four years. And I said, did somebody went to the end? He goes, yeah, the cousin of the owner or something. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Boat. So how did the boat get, I, okay, so he would, he would tow the boat Haul that around. boat around for like four years. People would people, drop their, their little Yeah, for the, for the lottery to win the boat. And, and when, then after four years, the boat went to like a relative of the person who ran the business. So it was all a. Scam. It was all just a bullshit, and it's all bullshit. I mean, whenever you see one of those, it's bullshit. Okay. I mean, people who think it's not bullshit, it blows my mind that people would think that uh, it's, a, it's a legitimate, you know. I, I mean, even, to... fucking even big corporations. Remember back in the 80s, uh, the uh, McDonald's uh, Monopoly? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, out, it's out again, but it was really yeah. big back then. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing was a racket. Uh, somebody in the company uh, figured out how to uh, get all the winning game pieces from the printer so they'd never oh, actually go out. I and then they distributed this. them to relatives. So all the bigger prizes went to this cabal that basically was ripping off yeah. the whole thing. Nobody, nobody, nobody legitimately won a big prize. And then, you know, the company was fined some sort of pittance, you know, sure. some sort of class action thing. And you could... Uh, Write in and get a two dollar coupon for free uh, fries or something. I can't fucking do that. Come and nobody ask people about it. Ask people who really think these contests are a good idea. Remember that uh, thing? How the whole monopoly thing that went on for like a decade, the whole eighties that was big business oh, yeah. McDonald's. How yeah. that was a how that was a, just a racket. People go what? <laughs> Easily and forgiven. It's all a racket. I mean, just I mean, anytime you see one of these, it's a racket. I mean, shit. Even the fucking lottery is a racket. Yeah, and people actually win the prize. I know. Well, we so, had the, we had the big Powerball thing. What was it? Five hundred and fifty million dollars, and there was. Uh, I always call winning the lottery redneck retirement planning because <sighs> every redneck I I meet always goes on about when I win the lottery, and I actually had some rednecks in my family who did win the lottery, so <laughs> they won seventeen million in the state lottery. And uh, talk about some folks who have a complete, utter lack of imagination for spending $17 million. I'll drive you out to Squim sometime, and you can see their <laughs> fucking ugly-ass uh, log A-frame and the uh-huh. shitty heap of fucking RVs and all-terrain vehicles that they've accumulated. And, uh, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it happens, but... Yeah. 
It's uh, yeah, that's interesting. I think I actually did fill out a card for a car once in a mall. I think I do remember winning that. No, know, no, I mean that. that's I mean, that's why they're at the malls. They get a bunch of you know people in their late teens and twenties to do it. And uh, okay, and, they're and, just and if getting, you if you somehow manage to get into your forties without becoming jaded about that stuff, I'm not sure how you did it. So but they're just getting that's so, off to you. Okay, so they're just getting leads. That's what they're doing. They're getting the leads, mm-hmm. you know? and so you have the leads that uh, that Kevin Spacey's character hands out, and I forget what's his name. Uh, what's Kevin's name? Oh, Williamson. Williamson hands out two a day, which seems like man, if you don't get somebody on the phone, you've got nothing to do all day. That always seemed kind of you get the cold call. Cool. Oh, you mean drive up to their house and? No, you'd have to like, just like pick names out of phone book if you don't want to use those leads. Oh, is that what they were talking about? Cold calling is not using the leads. It's just literally cold calling. It's like just getting a name in the phone book and calling <sighs> them. Yeah, yeah. The machine was talking about how back in the day they used to just fucking cold call. He was oh. talking about how he'd make sales. Just just call somebody out of the fucking blue and sell them twenty thousand dollars worth of property. Wow. Uh, so these leads like come out of the fishbowl. And the Glen Gary leads are the premium leads, so they have. They no, the must... Glenn, I thought the Glen Gary were the old leads. Or is that the, or is that the real Rancho Glen Ross stuff? I thought Glen Gary, the Glen Gary leads, man. I think it's oh, the those, those the new ones. Yeah, that's. Uh, wait a minute, isn't Ricky Roma sending Glen Gary? Is he? Yeah. Well, shit. All right. I guess I'm confused because I thought it's... not that it matters that much. Really. Well, it kind of does. Uh, who's st- okay? So. Who steals the Glengarry leads? The Glengarry leads are stolen by Levine and uh, Ross. And But I thought Roma was selling Glengarry. Remember? Oh, yeah. Fuck, I don't... Okay. I don't see where it's, why it's that important. There are good leads and there's bad leads. The good leads got stolen. The bad leads were a pile of shit with Patel and whatnot in it. So the good leads come from a fishbowl where the people who put them in actually may have more of a interest in purchasing land i think they're just new leads. leads they're just new leads just new not these old leads that they've seen all they've seen before they've seen okay. all these old leads yeah all right well yeah yeah the nyborgs the bad leads the 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 nyborgs who are the old people that just like talking to salesmen that was uh you know that was a nice moment in the film uh, not a nice moment but it was uh, a nice the war twit. story well, or which yeah, part of this which part I, I of did, the nyborg business well, you get okay. So the 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 spiral, the descent of Shell Levine. So he uh, comes into the office and talks the war story to Roma about how he sold the Nyborgs uh, eighty thousand dollars worth of land, and uh, then uh, he eighty two thousand, eighty two thousand, and then he makes the fatal mistake, which we hear at the beginning. Uh, Williamson does. He comes out, and it's. Shell Levine's downfall, even though Williamson is the the immediate, uh, I guess, the the immediate victim of that that transgression, where he's not victim, but where he's, he he basically tells tells the Jonathan Price character that his contract went downtown and blows it for Ricky Roma, and uh, that's when we get the intro there with uh, you know don't ever say anything until you're. Uh, until you know the score. Well, know. I think I think that whole scene is it's got a subtext. It's a little difficult to see unless you look at it really closely. And I don't think I totally quite understand it. Um, Williamson's making that up. He didn't send the contract. Down that's right, him. and that's and that's when the Shell contract was stolen. So I think is he just trying to fuck with uh, 
Ricky a little bit by saying he sent it downtown? Or is he mistaken and thinking that uh, that uh, Link wants to see that it went the contract went downtown? I think I think he mistook the situation. I think. Do you think uh, he was honestly mistaken, or do you think he was just fucking with him? Well, because there's the whole bit with the uh, you know uh, the play acting with Roma and Shel Levine, and then. Uh, Williamson steps out of the office and then he just kind of, you know, oh, that your contract went downtown, it's fine. And even though it didn't, and that was exactly the opposite thing that Roma wanted to hear. So why did Williamson say that? Was it a mistake? Or I think he was I guess, just I, I guess it's not clear whether it was a mistake or he was just fucking with Roma. I don't think he was he fucking with Roma. He knew the score and he decided to fuck him. I, think, I don't think he was fucking with Roma. I think he was, he was trying to. He know, thought that was the best answer. Yeah, obviously it was. All right. Well, I mean, sure. Let's just say it's that way. The thing I don't understand about that whole situation is how Williamson sees that Shelley's guilty of the robbery. I just, I just don't see it as being a black and white. It's real, quite a leap of logic by Williamson. Well, because to say that he's got, he's got him up against the wall simply because uh, Shelley says that he made it up, and then Shelley cracks under the. Under well, the pressure and basically gives it away. I, I just, I think it's very strange. It's in the play too, and I just don't quite, I don't quite follow that Williamson's gifted enough to see the subterfuge and second to break the will of Shelley. I just think that it well, seems a little strange for Williamson, unless he's secretly much more competent than we think. He just, I mean, that's a standard ploy. I mean, it's a good ploy to use in interpersonal re, uh, interactions, depending on what you want to play like the dollard. Right. And um and is Williamson playing a dollar when he really understands the the whole game very well? I think he was I trying cuz the way he the play he fucks Shelley would say that he really understands the situation much better than he leads people on to believe. Uh I th- hmm. uh, it's it's complicated. I, I well this is my take. I think that he was trying to play the game and mistook the situation and fucked over Ricky Roma, although that's debatable. And then, but Shell Levine had gotten so far under his skin as being so pathetic and desperate that he picked up on the fact that, you know, if he said he made it up, then he's like, well, why would he think I made it up? I think that's an easy conclusion to make. Really? That, yeah. Well, I don't why does Shelly break? It just doesn't seem like that's enough to convict Shelly of it. Uh, because you know what he, I mean? Yeah, well, it seems like Shelley's such a great liar. Why? Why is he fucking? Just because uh, Williamson, you know, th- reads a, a something that Shelley says a particular way. I don't see where that's got him dead to rights. And it seems like Shelley could just BS his way out of the problem. Saying, "Look, I, I just I didn't know if he was making it up or not. I was just I was just I was just talking. I don't know what he's talking about." Well, he just well because I don't he, see where he's fucked. Because he's the only person that would have known that that was a lie if he had robbed the office. I guess. I guess that's the the, the tell. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It seemed it seemed like pretty weak to have somebody dead to rights on a pretty weak. Uh, you know. Well, Shelley does slime. It's not really that great of a smoking gun. You know what I mean? No, but uh, Shell Levine's reaction—that sort of slimy backtracking—I think, uh, and it, it definitely, uh, in you know. Uh, I think Shelley fucked himself him. over there. The way uh, he, he broke did. down under pressure. I'm just surprised he broke under the pressure is all. Mm, I'm just okay. surprised he didn't have more fortitude. And I mean, maybe that's it. 
He broke. And if he hadn't have broken, maybe he would have got away with it. But so, do you think that was a bit of a weakness in Mamet's screenplay, or mm, maybe not? I think maybe the weakness is in Shelley. Ah, uh, true. Well, yeah, and he is. It's not. It's not any. It's not strength of Williamson. It's a weakness of Shelley that leads to it. He's like an art hardened exterior with a bit of a rotted core to him. I think. Uh, well, he's under a lot of stress. His daughter's sick. Yeah. You know, he's getting older. It's sort of sad. Well, and then there's that final line where he pleads to Williamson, you know, you know, but my daughter, when he says, I'm going to go on there and I can rat you out and you're going downtown. And then he goes, what about my daughter? And he just looks at him and he goes like, fuck you, you know. Fuck your daughter. Is that what he says? No, he just says, he says, what about my daughter? And he just says, fuck you, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the, I mean, it goes to say an inherent problem with capitalism. It is unfeeling and uncaring. It's by yeah. its very nature. It's like the real world. It's like nature. It's natural. Well, it's a natural thing. I mean, nature doesn't care. I mean, that's how old animals die. They get predated. It's interesting. I, you know, I work at a large company that's currently undergoing uh, union negotiations with Amazon, my, with my union, <laughs> and uh, the people, uh, the union represented folks around me are you know they get these offers from the company and it's like they're indignant or uh, they're like how can they blah 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 you know i can't believe it's like really they're they're not beholden to you they're beholden to their shareholders they're literally a, a, a legal machine a corporation is a legal machine that operates on a single prerogative to make as much money for its shareholders as possible at your expense at the well, workers is, are expense. people are people really honest by their indignation or is i mean it's a game that it both sure the, you, the employees and the company have to play they both have to be indignant they both have to say the other guy's a fucking asshole and is screwing me right and that's part of, that's part of the negotiation i mean how many of these you know members of this unnamed union are just saying look i gotta play the game you know if i want the most for me which is important I got to say the company is a fucking asshole and they're fucking us well, over and they're screwing us out and they're holding money back and the executives are getting all the profits and blah, blah, blah. Because that's just part of the game because that may be they true. get more benefits, they're stealing money from the executives and that's what they want to do. So why would they not vilify and why would the, the company not say this union's a bunch of lazy fucking no good pricks? I'll Which say, is part of the game. Well, I'll say that's true with the union bosses. I'd say that that's played up to full effect. Well, that's the, what they should do. That's their job. Sure, that's their job. But the water cooler talk, like in my office, where... Well, if, if you're going to play the game, you sort of have to believe it on a certain level. Yeah, I just find... I mean, it, maybe they're trying to turn you to get you behind it. If you're if you're like, you know, I don't I don't really feel like the union is that important, which I, I don't understand how any worker would think his union is not important. I think it's a terrible, terrible mistake to make. It's, but, it's, it's, it just feels like, I don't know. They, they take it personally, and I find it odd that they do. It's their money. Well, when somebody takes money out of your wallet, do you not take it personally? No, it's my money too, but I can't because it's the corporation. It's not a person who's mandating these cuts to a contract. It's the shareholders. It's the system. It's the way it's set up. And well, how had, do you not get that money taken out of your wallet? What do you do? I mean, what do you do other than piss and moan and squeak and, uh, and argue? I got you. No, I'm, I'm just, I just, I just understand what's what other method is available to the workers to get their maximum benefit out of their corporation. 
Well, then it's a matter of PR and stagecraft, I guess. I guess yeah. that's 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 all what it comes and down to. You're part of the play, and if you want to be part of the play, you got to act the part. You got to be if you're going to be on stage, which everybody is around the water cooler or at the union meetings or on the picket line, you're on stage. And you want the most for you, you better fucking play the part. And that's what those guys are doing. It's like that Rush lyric, all the world's a stage and we are merely players. No, sorry. Well, I, I just I just don't I don't see why I don't see how you can fault those union guys. Yeah, I, mean, I don't. Well, I just the union is the only way that workers can have power against an executive structure in a corporation. It's the only way, unless you're an exceptional worker and you have an exceptional skill, which is super highly valued. And even then, the you're going to be valued lower than than your actual market value if you let the company fuck you. Yeah. I just don't see. I mean, this is the only thing that workers got going for them is unions. No, I agree. I, I just, the, the emotion I find strange, I guess. I, I, I uh, you know, maybe I'm a cold fish. I don't know. But uh, I, I think it's just part of the stagecraft yeah, of, I, of, of, of getting people excited. And plus, if you want to turn other workers to be on your side, you got to, I mean, you got to fucking appeal to their low animal feeling. I mean, you don't really, if you don't really care about something, then you're not going to really value it super highly. Not, I mean, a lot, most people can't be cold and calculating. Uh, so they true. have to be emotional about something. So they got to get themselves worked up into a frenzy in order to get the best outcome for themselves. It doesn't yeah. seem it doesn't seem unusual to me. Uh, I agree. I, I, you know, I, and the one thing about unions is why in our society are some strikes considered illegal? It just blows my mind that, uh, or why uh, you know having closed shop is 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 illegal in some states. We're going to have to review the movie Hoffa and maybe get into that conversation. Maybe. Uh, We're getting up on the hour here. Do you want to uh, do the Ebert rundown? So Ebert reviewed this movie back in 92 when it came out on October 2nd. And he gave it three and a half stars, which is a pretty good review from Ebert. Um, let me see here. He says, The shabby real estate office in Glengarry, Glen Ross, seems likely to become one of the movie places we will remember, like the War Room in Dr. Strangelove or Strangelove or Hannibal Lecter's Cell. I guess that's okay. It is, it is yeah. a nice scene. Um, it does have a real, uh, like, sort of a stage production feel to oh, it. Oh, by the way. so much time spent in that one location. Let me interrupt just a second. The most expensive part of the production in that first act is the uh, rain effects that are constant, that constant downpour. So there is a lot of rain, and it's coming down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they must have. They must have moved a lot of water. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I was thinking that because in the office you get like the drenched window, and so they had that some kind of mechanism doing that. So and outside it was just pouring all the time. <laughs> it was a hot day, and it was a rainy night. Uh, Sound yeah. really nasty. Imagine how sticky you'd be uh, in those suits. Uh, anyway. Um, the, uh, he says, uh, the salesman who tried to sound rich and confident over the phone, but whose eyes are haunted with despair. Yeah, that's certainly the case. He says that uh, the movie, uh, obviously, is, is uh, based on a play by David Mamet. And he says, David Mamet once briefly worked in such a sales boiler room, which I thought was oh. interesting. I hadn't heard that. No. Um, then he talks about Jack Lemmon. I mean, there's so many great performances. But about Lemmon, Lemmon has a scene in this movie that represents the best work he has ever done. He makes a house call on a man who does not want to buy real estate. The man knows it. We know it. Lemon knows it. 
But Lemon keeps trying, not registering the man's growing impatience to have him leave his house. There is a fine line in this scene between deception and breakdown, between Lemon's false jollity and the possibility that he may collapse right on the man's rung, rug, surrendering all hope. Yeah, I do really like that scene. It's uh, It kind of gets to the heart of it, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another great scene is uh, Al Pacino playing his trade against... Uh, Jonathan Price character at the uh, at the restaurant. He says, Pacino and Jonathan Price, who play who plays a uh, possible customer, have a masterful scene in a restaurant booth, which Pacino subtly tries to seduce Price into buying, but by playing on what he senses is a latent homosexuality. And it's sort of interesting because there's the the, the initial scene you have Jonathan Price's arm around Ricky Roma. Did you notice that? Yeah, I did. Th- I thought that was. I thought that was weird. You know, like as maybe, opposed to sitting them across from the booth, like you yeah, would expect. They're sitting like, next to each other. Yeah, <laughs> that's a little gay. So yeah, interesting. yeah, it is. It is sort of weird. But the, yeah, when you talked earlier about the sort of you know, seduction of of Ricky Roma, yeah, it's kind of what it is. You know. Yeah. He also talks about death of a salesman here. Arthur Miller in death of a salesman. Arthur Miller uh, made the salesman into a symbol of the failure of the American dream. In Miller's play, Willie Loman was out there all alone, a smile and a shoe shine. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, uh, Ebert says, is a version for the modern times. He doesn't elaborate any further, which is sort of disappointing. Yeah, you know, I, a couple well, more sentences I, I, there. I, they're a little bit two different studies, I would say. This is more uh, about the business and death of a salesman is more about Willie Loman. Uh, I, anyway. I mean, it's it's really about you know multiple salesmen in this. I mean, I think. I mean, just as you said earlier, that uh, Lemon's character is a lot like Willie Loman and sort of the yeah, despair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm surprised he left it. I'm surprised Ebert left it just at that one very Maybe. brief paragraph. Uh, and, and that's pretty much it. But in the, in the last paragraph, something I don't quite understand. Uh, he says, I must not forget to mention the humor in the film. Yeah, that's weird. Mammoth's dialogue has a kind of logic, a cadence. And that's certainly part of Mammoth's, um, you know, he has sort of this weird cadence to his his lines anyways he has a cadence that allows people to arrive in triumph at the end of sentences we could possibly not have imagined we could not possibly have imagined i don't know what he's well, saying there i mean the writing is masterful and it's mammoth i would say so, that i would say that blake's 10 minute piece is has dark black humor associated with it just because it's so over the top with the verbal abuse and when it's and verbal- maybe the war story from Shelley has some humor to it where they're talking about him sitting there for 22 minutes holding the pen in his hand uh, I, Blake- I, I found that I found that vaguely humorous uh, well I, the Blake thing because you know it's just so brutal and it's a verbal abuse between strangers so you don't take it to heart as much as you would if it was like a domestic situation or something like that and just like the fact that he pulls out two brass balls from his briefcase like it's almost over the top like it's almost a rehearsed bit that he's doing it is a bit you can tell it's a bit like i mean it's just it's like a vegas stage show it's it's just it's just blows you (laughs) away perfectly sized balls they're just they're exactly the size of the testes they're not the and size hold- of a full scrotum. They're they're really the size of a and testicle. And he, and he, and he holds them there, like right where his balls are, and one slightly lower than the other. And then, uh, you know, like coffees for closers. And you think you think I'm fucking with you? 
you know, I, and he is. That's kind <laughs> and of Shelley's just sitting there with the with the pot in his hand, just like incredulously going, "What the fuck is going on?" I don't here? know, man. I I, I, I guess it's humorous, me, boy. That we've had some black humor in some of the movies we've seen, but this is uh, this is there's 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 just a lack of light. Well, and then the berating that Roma gives to Williamson, I, it's it's there's some humor. There's a just, lot of berating. There's something about like uh, I don't know. In, Full Metal Jacket when the uh, sergeant, and I forget his name, uh, just le- lays into Pyle and calling him, you know, the worst shit in the world. There's a dark humor with that, and I don't know if it's something that's basically humor for men uh, because men like to give each other shit and and that kind of thing, but I don't know. those Those two points in the film... I wouldn't say that they're laugh out loud humorous or they're just darkly humorous and it just kind of, I don't know. I don't, I don't have any, it's, it's, it's cringing humor. It's cringing humor. It's tough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's uh, not over. I'm I was never laughing. No, it's like schadenfreude. I guess maybe that's the schaden over the top schadenfreude. I guess that's maybe what, uh, uh, Eber's talking about there, but that's pretty much it. I mean, he enjoyed the movie. It's it's an okay review. All right. Well, do we got anything else on uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross? Any other little tidbits? No, I mean, I don't think I have anything else I need to say about it. No, I don't either. So uh, next week, I'm going to let you talk about the movie next week because I know virtually nothing about it. So, well, uh, I watched it once uh, some time ago. It's uh, called Old Boy. It's from a um, a uh, a South Korean director, which I have not seen any of his other work. Um, Chan Wook Park. I have not but, seen uh, many Korean movies except for The Host, which was really good. But Yeah, The Host, is really, I think Korea really is having quite a the last 10 or 15 years. They've had, uh, you know, something that rivals, you know, maybe the 50s and 60s of uh, Japanese cinema. Mm. It's sort of the powerhouse of foreign film. Anyways, Old Boy, I mean, one reason I like it, it has just the, this amazing single shot fight scene with one guy against like 30 guys in a, in a cramped hallway. A la like hard boiled. I mean, that sounds like hard boiled to me. Uh, you mean that's, I mean, the movie is not necessarily like hard boiled, but that scene is a little bit, it's one, it's one and the way they shoot it, they basically take uh one side of the hallway off and just shoot it from the side, like a 2d scroller fighter. <laughs> and, uh, that is just an amazing scene. All right. Uh, so uh, this is back from 2003, and it's it's definitely it certainly got a bit of a cult following. As a, okay, it's sort is of it, a dark actiony movie. Is it sort of big amongst the uh, Tarantinos of our of our world? I guess is it uh, uh, that kind of a film, or is it more of I like don't a, know. I mean, it certainly is talked about. I mean, I'm not really deep into you know cult movie circles, but uh, definitely a movie that uh, if you're looking for cult action films, uh, this is certainly be on uh, anybody's top twenty. Okay. And I think it's something we definitely should uh, should go see. It's right up should be right up our alley. All right. So next week is old boy. Um I don't got anything else. Do you got anything else? Uh no, that's pretty much it. All right. Until then folks. Because you listened. <laughs>